very straightforward menu for this episode of the Rugby Paper Podcast as we look ahead to a tantalizing round four of the 2023 Six Nations. Joining me and the entire gang of columnists to look ahead to England, France, Scotland, Ireland and Italy, Wales is former British and Irish Lion and England prop forward Fran Cotton. A return to rugby um, this week following a fairly extraordinary episode actually with James Waterhouse last week. Um, plenty to look forward to in round four of the Six Nations with three fixtures that, to be honest, I think could go either way. Um, the gang's back together. Brendan, Nick and Chris is back, having taken a brief week off last week. How are you, Chris? Um, I, I've been better, but the, 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 sight of, um, the sight of Frank Cotton just lifts my spirits above uh... and beyond anything I could imagine. Well, you've done my intro for me. Three British Lions tours and he's gracing us with his presence this morning. Fran Cotton, how are you? Um, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sitting up here in Langley, Macclesfield. No snow yet, boys. Uh, the game's on. <laughs> <laughs> no snow where I am either, um, but we've just been talking off air. It has hit the south of England, certainly. Um, Fran, have you watched all three rounds of the Six Nations so far? Certainly have, yeah. I think it's been a superb tournament so far. It's as good as I can remember. So it's been a great tournament so far and looking forward, it uh, it could even get better. Certainly could. Let's jump straight into it. Um, I want to start with England-France. And we were talking about England-Wales and it being a bit of a clunky game. Um, and you certainly had sort of two slightly stodgy styles um, pitched up against one another, a lot of kicking, etc. And I'll come to you, Fran, about this. Um, what game do you think England want to be playing against France? It felt like they kind of matched Wales's kicking game and sort of beat them at it. I don't really feel like you could can afford to just kick into French hands, given that the French play quite an expansive brand of rugby. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you certainly don't want to give their uh, back three uh, uh, easy ball to run back at you, because that's certainly what they will do. So, uh, I mean, the thing about England's kicking game, you know, I can understand the, uh, the box kicking, uh, you know, in certain parts of the field. And in fairness, against Wales, that was extremely good, because we always were there either to retain or put them under real pressure. But, you know, some of the kicking, certainly going into the opposition 22, I just can't understand that. I mean, the classic was when Slade uh, grubber kicked through in the last 10 minutes when he had the two-man overlap. I mean, you know, that's bread and butter stuff for uh, centres and wingers to uh, score. So they've got to improve on that and we've got to be confident enough when the situation presents it to really go and play, not just kick, go and play because uh, we've got some exciting players. That sort of brings me to the first big topic of debate in terms of selection. It's it's Wednesday, the team's not out yet. Um, Marcus Smith-Brennan was sent home to get some game time, maybe an audition of sorts in the big game against Exeter. It, it probably couldn't have gone much better. Um I'm going to go around the group. Brendan, I'll start with you. Everyone pick their starting fly half. Obviously, no Ford, but, and Chris, I know you sing the praises of George Ford. Maybe you would have liked to see him. But, Brendan, who would you have at 10? Yeah, I'm going to go with Marcus Smith. Um, I didn't think Owen Farrell was very good last week, last time out. No players beyond dropping. He's made it awkward because they've made him captain. Uh, it has to be a 50, it has to be a straight call. You can't fudge around with moving Farrell to 12 now. England have got a decent centre partnership at last. So, yeah, I think it's Marcus Smith's time with Owen on the bench. Chris? I think it's, um, I th I think it's unusually difficult. I, th I think actually the, pre the, the press 
possibly overreacted, unlike the press round to overreact, isn't it? I think the press possibly overreacted with the fact that Marcus Smith was sent back. He played no rugby. And um, if he's going to play a part against France, he probably needed some some game time. I mean, it seemed entirely logical to me that he should, yes, you always run the risk of injury, of course, and that's happened before. But if he if he needs to get a bit of a, uh, get some wind in his sails um, a week before a big game, if he's going to play any part at all, then that was a sensible move by Borthwick. Would I play him at 10? I'm not completely sold on the Marcus Smith thing in the way that some other people are, although I think he's got rich, rich potential. I rather suspect they'll they'll play Farrell again um, because uh, even though Farrell didn't kick particularly well by his standards at goal in Cardiff, um, he's still <laughs> a top 80s, almost 90% goal kicker at test level. And if you've got a very big game, and you need a 10 who's going to kick you some goals and be defensively extremely strong against a very, very powerful French side, I think it's a no-brainer. I think he'll he'll stick with Farrell and, and possibly pay, you know Smith will come off the bench, hopefully with slightly more than 20 seconds left of the match. Nick? Um, I'd definitely go with Smith. I think that if England have got... Um, any ambitions of playing the sort of game that Fran has talked about, uh, they need to have an attacking fly half who uh, is a threat to defences as well as a creative threat. Uh, I think his goal kicking is pretty good. Um, his his stats are very high. Uh, I think test match goal kicking is a different uh, beast in some ways. Um, but Owen hasn't been going well in that regard. I don't think that he's been... Um, He's been uh, poor. I just don't think um, during the Six Nations, I just don't think he's really um, taken the game by the scruff in the way in which uh, he does for Saracens. Um, he doesn't seem as comfortable in the England pattern as he does for his club. And if they're going to find out about Smith, you know, time is, is moving on. And um, this is a big pressure game. And this is the sort of game that you've got to test a player like that. And you've got to start him in if you want to find out what the answers are. And that's the big question. I've got to say, I agree. Um, Fran, lastly, I'll come to you. Um, well, I'd definitely start with uh, Marcus Smith. I thought he was superb against uh, Exeter. And uh, uh, we're going back to uh, being an a little bit more adventurous in the way we play, then uh, I think Smith is the one who uh, can deliver that. Uh, I think as importantly, he's going to be the choice at uh, Scrum Art because I do think that when Mitchell came on in both games this season, we've actually looked a lot slicker and quicker. Uh, Van Portfleet is you know, a good young prospect, but he's uh, got to improve his basics. I mean, he stands up with the ball too many times, taking space uh, uh, <coughs> away from outside so if I was selected I'd go Mitchell Smith as the halfback combination for the uh, the game against France I'm completely with Fran on Alex Mitchell as you know I think he's been the best scrum half in the country for two and a half best part of three years and I'm amazed that he's not established as England's number one already I mean for anyone who's almost as quick as Steve Smith what's not to like <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought you'd say that, Chewy. Um, still, on the, uh, still on the Smith conundrum, going back to what you were saying, Nick, is you're running out of time to look at alternatives to Fowler, right? And 
Do you think that if Farrell starts game four and game five, as to be honest, I'm expecting him to do, all of a sudden you're saying that Farrell will be the 10 through to the World Cup because, again, it's high stakes games and any World Cup warm up probably wouldn't be to the same extent. All of a sudden, do you trust Marcus Smith, who hasn't actually played one with a big 12, a direct running 12, which he deserves to have a chance to do like he does at Quinn's, but also without Farrell at 12 to steady the ship when the toys go out of the pram? Yeah, I, I think the last point's a very good one. I think he does need to play alongside Lawrence. I think we, we need to see what, what he can do in that regard. Um, look, talking about World Cups, it's still, you know, we're still, you know, eight months away or whatever. A week is a long time in rugby. You know, if if Smith starts against France and it doesn't go well, <laughs> then, you know, you, you, you know, coach is inevitably going to look at his other options. Um I think he's already looking at his other options as, you know, first and second and Smith at third. And I think that that's the wrong pecking order. I think that Smith, you know, I mean, if if England were to lose against France and then lose badly against Ireland, I think if he starts Smith for one game, he's probably give, got to give him a second start as well, unless it's a disaster. You know, we'll see what, you know, where he is um, in terms of being able to run a game um successfully for England and that needs to happen now and if he needs to retrench thereafter if England don't have what it takes to play the fast game you know maybe he has to revert but um it wouldn't be something that I'd be looking to do quickly because the England pack is not as formidable as some of those that we've seen and it seems to me that the fast game is not only the game that's going to um, it's the game that's going to be successful for England if they want to be successful at this World Cup. Okay, that's interesting. Fran, do you think that this 10 conundrum is a good problem to have at this stage? Um, obviously, depth is you know a good thing, but to have your captain at 10 when his spot is under fire is not necessarily beneficial for, well, for the team. I mean, to have depth is a, is a good thing. I think what's important that uh, Steve Borthwick needs to decide the philosophy of the team because uh, if Ford had been fit and match fit, I would have started with Ford um, against France. Uh, so Ford and Smith will be my choices at fly off if we want to play in the way that the, we need to play if we're going to be successful in the, uh, in the World Cup. The good thing about starting Smith on Saturday is you're going to find out it's going to be a high-pressure game. Can Marcus, and he's got all the uh, ability in the world, can he manage a really, really tough test uh, uh, match? That, that's the question, Mark. I think he can, but you know you need to see him do that. So going into the World Cup, personally, I think it's Smith and Ford will be my choices at fly out if we're going to play with the kind of expansive game and quick game that we need to play. And we need to play against France because France have shown that if you play a quick game against them, <coughs> the last 20 minutes, you know, uh, as Scotland did, you know, you can find a lot of space uh, out there that uh, uh, we can exploit. So hopefully we're going to play a fast game. And that's why I think scrum off and fly off quick players that's what we need to do uh, to be looking at. And who would your captain be then in that um, scenario? I go with with Courtney out. Uh, I go with Genge. 
Chris, I'm going to come to you about this. I've just, since Smith's 22nd cameo, or whatever it was, against Wales, um, just a little bit has been circulating about him potentially being another Danny Cipriani in terms of the enigmatic flair player who never really gets his chance to the same extent. Do you think there's any danger of that? No, I don't think the comparison is in any way appetite, really. We have to remember that Cipriani, for all his... For all his, um, I don't know, is peccadillos a reasonable word? Probably in all in 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 <laughs> in in Danny's case, um, for all the for all the problems he had off field and and the problems he had with his own teammates and what have you, which have all been very well documented down the years. What really knackered Danny was injury. You know, he was he was on the he was on the the cusp. I well, he was actually in the England side and and very much on the cusp of. Fulfilling the considerable, I mean, epic potential almost that very, very good coaches saw in him. Um, and then Ollie Barkley fell on his ankle and and it put him back an awfully long time. It was a bad injury. It cost him a yard of pace. And that's the other thing that people forget about Cipriani was how quick he was when he came into, you know, big time professional rugby. It cost him that yard of pace, which is which is a, a pretty shocking thing for anyone of his style of play uh, to suffer. He was then rushed back at the wrong moment. And then, for reasons best known to himself, he pushed off to Australia and did what he did subsequently. So I don't think Marcus Smith is in, in any way in that category, either temperamentally, as far as I can gauge it. I've never met the guy. Um uh, temperamentally, or or in, in or in his physical state. I mean, uh, no, nothing tells me that he's unpopular in any way amongst his teammates. He's certainly not suffered any an injury on anything like the magnitude that cost Cipriani so much. So I don't think the comparisons are there at all. And he's already got more caps and sips, I think. So I mean, you know, he is in is in and around the camp constantly. It's He's not getting the, the run of starts that he wants, that, that Danny never got. Danny never got a run of starts, ever. And in fact, the last seven, eight, nine years of his career, it was just bench or 10 minutes at the end, wasn't it? I mean, he, he was never given a chance for 2015 to sort of try and press his case or 2019. But yeah, I don't think they're really similar cases or similar personalities at all. Brendan, do you expect any changes to the starting 15? Obviously, Laws is out now. Um do you think he may have come in, given the size of that French pack? Possibly. Uh, I'm with um, with Chris there. I think it might be time for Alex Mitchell to start. Um, I think that would be interesting. But no, I, I think England have got, have got you know they've got to build on what they you know they've won two out of three. They've got to build on that. Just be better, really, uh, and quicker. Fran, we've spoken already about. Well, Nick said it actually about how this England pack is not. A driving force that, in a set, in the same way that in in England pack has been, does that worry you against the French side of that power? Uh, well, thoughts against uh, Wales. I mean, uh, I thought England pack overall uh, was pretty good. I mean, particularly back row. I mean, that's been the, the front five. There are no issues there, provided uh, it tells you gets back to anything like his best form. Because I don't think it has been his best form. Front five is good. Front five. Back row, I thought, was outstanding against Wales. Uh, and they're going to have to be outstanding again uh, against a very, very strong uh, French back row. So um, I think it's going to be even Stevens there on uh, uh, on Saturday. So I don't think there's going to be 
uh, anything that um, you know, can highlight as a weakness either side. I think the important thing is you've got to move this French pack around. You've got to move them around and do it from the first minute. Keep the pace of the game up. Make them run around because you know, you've got some very, very big uh, human beings in that French pack. And uh, I don't care how much training they're doing. When you start running them around those big boys, they tend to blow a bit. So uh, <clears throat> that would be my uh, my message to them: move them around, move them around, keep improving because <clears throat> we've improved from the first game to the second game as well. Keep moving forward. Uh, what will be interesting is the scrum because uh, at the very highest level, we've seen the scrum creak a little bit, even with uh, Ellis and uh, uh, Sinks in uh, in the front uh, front positions there. So I just want to see them have a dominant game against a good scrimmaging pack. That uh, That's what I'd like to see. Fran, as we've got you here, uh, can you roll back the years and just give us a little insight into those beasts you used to take on in the French pack? Um, and you, you propped, because you moved around and they moved around, you propped against both Papper on board and Sholly, didn't you? What, what were their respective qualities, if that's the right word? Who was <laughs> well, the best? Yeah, by uh, first time I met Gerard was uh, 1975 and his first cap at Twickenham. And uh, I always remember coming in the dressing room and getting all the match programme and you, you, know, you look at the pen portraits, look at the opposition. And it started off Gerard Sholly who's the ex-heavyweight boxing champion of French <laughs> armed forces. And you can't think, now, I wonder why they picked him in the team. So, <laughs> he just knew, and he was a massive bloke. But Papa on board, to me, was one of the greatest prop forwards of all time. I mean, he uh, not only was he difficult to scrimmage against, he was also a very good player around the field. So, he was absolutely outstanding. The 76 pack was the best pack I ever played against. And that front row of Sholly, Paco and Papa on board, that uh, that took some beating. So uh, I don't think they're quite as fearsome as they used to be. And they're certainly a lot more disciplined in terms of foul play than they used to be. So, uh, Except yeah. for Mr. Hawass, or however you pronounce well, his name, who's got a punch up okay. against, send off against Scotland. Yeah, yeah. That, that was unfortunate. I mean, the good one was in the Scotland game when he uh, brought a big right hand over, didn't he, and uh, uh, got sent off. But uh, I think the, the massive change in French rugby has been the discipline. Uh, I mean, that kind of stuff was just standard playing French rugby. That's just the way he played. Uh, but now, far more discipline. And even this this team is one of the uh, best disciplined teams in the, uh, in the Six Nations in terms of penalties and so forth. So, you know, a different style of play, but they're still formidable uh, pack of forwards they've got there. That's a good pack of uh, forwards France have got. So England are really going to have to be up to the mark. That 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 great pack of the of the seventies, Fran. So who was in the second row at that time? Was that the, the, um, the very nice Michel Palmier, the pacifist, and um, and Ambenon, perhaps? Ambenon, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they were nice. Yeah. Alan Estev. Yeah. The man mounted. <laughs> and then a, a, a pretty poor back row of Reeves, Screller and Bastiat. That's one of the great back rows ever, isn't it? I mean, yeah, in yeah. any era, that is one of the great yeah. back rows. It was perfectly balanced, massive uh, amount of power. 
and uh, a scrum half in Faru who uh, knew how to keep them going forward. So, no, they were a great pack of forwards. Terrific. Yeah. Couple of handy psychopaths in the second row. <laughs> well, Palmier and Amini uh, had a hell of a reputation. In fact, in in the England games, it really it was Sholly was the uh, the main one. Yeah, because uh, he just knew if you didn't keep an eye on him, he could uh, he could catch you with one that could have uh, ended the game for you. So, but uh, no, the. Afterwards, they were great guys. I uh, loved enjoying the company, but on the field, oof, ferocious. Did they have a bar in the hospital in those days, Fran? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. No, but, um, well, Bob, Bobby Windsor always tells the story, and they were, uh, well, the other guy that uh, played just before them, it was even bigger, Alan Astev from... Uh, talking to Bobby and say, just really warned him that uh, he was going to slit one through from the second row. But, uh, yeah, no, they had a tremendous pack of forwards in those days. The, uh, you know, as I said, the best they ever played against. It's always been the way, hasn't it? I'm interested that you say that they're not quite as fearsome now, and that's obviously, well, one thing that we've often said on this podcast is the French... Only in terms of foul play. I mean, they... Uh, yeah, I always found... Certainly, in my experience of all the countries in the world, the worst in terms of foul play were always the French. Yeah, that was because of the lack of discipline in their their home uh, competition. I mean, it was just standard practice that a uh, what they call it a uh, bagger general, a general punch up, was just <laughs> part of the game. Yeah. But even now, it's fascinating, isn't it? That, that I mean. I mean, the, the discipline in French rugby has been completely transformed. I mean, certainly since your day, but it, it's it's a, it's a different beast. But they're still prone, as as the, the intellectual giant at Tighthead showed us um, last time out, they're still prone to the old, just entirely pointless act you know. of, of violence. It happened to them at the, at the World Cup in Japan, did it not, when they, when they had the guy sent off against... Uh, Wales when they were big points up, um, yeah. and and then went on to lose the game and got on a plane home. There's 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 always just that lingering potential that there'll be a flashpoint from them. Yeah, 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 I'd agree. It's always in them. It's always there, just below the yeah. surface. But they've just been able to uh, control it of of late. But the uh, I mean the guy um, now whether he went in deliberately to headbutt uh, the Scottish guy. There, I mean it pretty much looked like that. Uh, so it was an automatic red, but it's just bubbling below the surface. You just know if you get them excited and uh, frustrated that, you know, they could uh, bubble over and uh, come up with something which you'd find quite ridiculous. I mean, the beauty of French rugby, they can do something absolutely breathtaking in terms of skill and running. And suddenly you go, oh, no, can't believe he's just done that with some act of foul play that... Uh, you know, it was just uh, unacceptable. But, you know, you're never going to change it. It's just there. It's in them. If, if, mean, you'd, committed such a, if you'd committed such a misdemeanour um, um, as who asked did um, against the Scots, Fran, I mean, you were a distinctive-looking bloke on the field. He was some, probably the most the most distinctive-looking bloke on the field. The only bloke who looked like Mohamed Hoas was Mohamed Hoas on the pitch. They watch it 97 times on a big screen. And then he says, who? Me. Me, yeah. Yeah. But he's a I'm going to 
We never give penalties away or foul play ever, do we? Just can look at the referee and say, I can't believe you've done that reference. I'm I'm gonna to come to uh, Mohammed Harris's defense on this occasion. I think he's been much maligned, particularly by Hewitt. Yeah. I think that uh, he he definitely um you know it was it, it was a little bit uh, surprising that four minutes after Gilchrist had gone <laughs> He put himself in a position to also be given his marching orders. But actually, the position was that they were in danger. They were on their own line. They were in danger of giving away a try. He was within a nanosecond uh, of, uh, you know, because I think that the uh, that White had the ball in his hands. I'm not sure that he lifted it, but he had the ball in his hands. So it was a very, very fine judgment. He might have been offside. The head clash, I think, was accidental. I don't think that he aimed for his head. It all happens too quickly in that sort of circumstance. It, it wasn't um, best timed, but, you know, one guy's stooping, the other guy comes in, and the heads meet. It happens. And I, I so I, I and the idea that Howis, because he planted a punch on Richie, what is it, three years ago now, is somehow a serial villain of the Palmier or Amber... <laughs> Or <laughs> um, uh, script, I think, is is not right. You know, they have to be more disciplined. They are more disciplined. And one of the things that interests me about France with this game coming up is that Marchand, who is a very, very good hooker and extremely good over the ball, you know, he's one of these flankers who's a turnover uh, expert, a bit like um, the South African uh, guy, Marks. I think that Marchand's been playing for 80 minutes pretty well uh, for the you know the first three games because Malvaca has been they 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 bought on this guy Barlow uh, towards the end but he's he's had long stints in all three games and if you look at the French pattern previous to that is Marchand gets spelled at about half time and Malvaca comes on and Malvaca has pretty well an identical skill set at the breakdown. So and Malvaca is back for this game. So I think that um I think that France won't be uh, they they're not the most mobile side but I think that they they they've got their bench very much in the South African mold and uh, they'll use it in that way against England. Your your defense of Hawass is is uh remarkable in many respects Nick um, but the most remarkable aspect of it is you're clearly in the wrong profession profession you should have been a defense lawyer there there are I, any, I thought any, you were going to say boxing in, correspondent <laughs> anyone, anyone in trouble with the authorities watching this podcast will be on the telephone to you asking you to don a wig on their behalf that's all uh, right. I'll, I'll do it gladly <laughs> especially if it's Harris's wig yeah, I was going to say, get ask him to come on the pod if he gets in touch. <laughs> yeah. France are bolstered by the return of Moveka. Um, another one is Dante, who Mofana hasn't necessarily set the world alight in the midfield. But, Brendan, do you feel it's a bit soon for Dante to come back? No, I think, you know, if, if Sean Edwards and that have decided that training is good to go, I mean, he's such a key player for them, I think, that Dante at 90% would... Would give them something. Um, we must be too sympathetic towards the French, but I'm feeling from for a bit. I thought Jelenok had an amazing contribution to that last game before he went off with his ACL. He'd rediscovered 
some of his best form. And he, and when he's playing well, he is a massive player for France. And uh, Christ, he, he did quite a bit on one leg before he had to go off. So he was having a huge game. And I think he's just a sort of bloke you'd need at Twickenham. Uh, so they're going to miss him. I'm not quite sure how they're going to rejig things there. Uh, so I'm interested to see what they do with that. Um, but, but Dante, I think, is a big player for them. He's been a bit of a missing link for them in midfield. Him and Fiku were really beginning to take the world on, weren't they, before injury interrupted there? Yeah, exactly. And I, Well, you'd have to think it would be um, François Croix who would come, come in for Gelenoc. Yeah, who's a very decent player, but he's not Gelenoc when Gelenoc is 100%, you know. So yeah. there's a slight deficit there for France in the back row, I think. Let's have a look at predictions um, for the weekend. Now, Chris, you weren't here, so you may not have heard the news, but um, you've got a friend now with his hand on the wooden spoon as well as you, uh, in in the form of Nick Kane. Yeah, but bo- both of you still bringing up the rear. Now, Nick, you've predicted an England win. Uh, you're the only one to do it. Now, you've got to stick by it, so give us the narrative in which that happens. <laughs> I think uh, Fran Fran mapped it out pretty well. I think that they play with speed. Um, they do try and move move France France around, and look for the same, you know, the same gaps that uh, the Scots exploited so well. Um, so yeah, I do I do think that I mean it's going to require their best game uh, for some time. Um, you know, not just in this Six Nations, but going back some way now. Um, you know, back to the Australia tour, it's going to require better, you know, better performances even than they put in there. And I think that they're just about uh, capable of it. The scrum is is not, doesn't seem, I mean, sometimes it can be a huge influence, even though there aren't as many scrums as there used to be. And sometimes it's it's almost incidental. So it depends what sort of a game you get there, because I do think that France will go after that England front row. But France have got, um, you know, have obviously had injuries at tight head. I think that the guy that they've got in, uh, got in there, Falatea, is is very handy, um, and I think that they'll, you, you know, I think that they'll they'll target Sinclair. Bay will target Sinclair. There's no question they'll 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 go for him. Uh, they've seen what South Africa have done. They've had a lot of success against that England front row, and they'll think that is a weakness. So. Uh, um, we'll we'll see if England can can hold out there, or if the scrum isn't quite as influential a factor in the game as the front as the French will hope. Then I think that England are capable of winning. You know, home advantage is is huge. They've had two games where they found their feet, um, and I, I think I, I I don't think that he's. <laughs> it's weird. I don't think that he's going to pick uh, Smith to to start. I think it will be Farrell. But I think that uh, England might just um, might just edge it. So you're actually standing by your prediction as well as having yeah. to stand by your prediction. Yeah. Very good. Well, you're the only one out of the five of us to predict an England win. Chris, how would you feel if you lost the grip on the wooden spoon completely? I'd be distraught. <laughs> I'd be distraught because I've never wanted to give Kane anything in my life. Um, I'm, I, I'm I coming to, for it, mate. I tell you, I failed to I failed to see how, in any fair world, I'm bottom of anything. I mean, I made these predictions, all of them, the whole set before the tournament started. I was within one point of getting the precise score. You were stop moaning. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, I, I was going to ask Fran actually, because Fran, Fran, you must have come across a referee who understood scrimmaging. 
during your long career in the front row. Do you think such a species still exists? Uh, <clears throat> some are better than others, but I still think that, well, nine times out of ten, as far as I can see, they get the, get the decision wrong. <laughs> the uh, number of times where you see a, a scrum going forward, the opposition tighter goes on the floor, and they penalise the team going forward. So, I don't know, it's... It's hard to. I know, I know, crafty front row forward. You know, trying to con the referee, and you've got to be conscious of all that. But I, I still think, and in fairness, it is very difficult for them. But I still think the standard refereeing at the scrums is poor. Interesting. Interesting. Is that because it, almost no refs would have ever played prop, whereas a lot of them would have played a little bit of in the backs or in well, the back? Uh, that's, in, a good, in their... that's a good point, Brendan. I don't think unless you've played in the front row, you fully understand the uh, intricacies of it. And of course, I mean, there uh, have some been big changes from uh, since I played, particularly on the engagement side of it. The uh, uh, And I think that's where a lot of the problems stem from, where they've emphasised it so much that you know, most of the penalties seem to come from that area. Do you not think, Fran, that the old fold in once everyone had turned up for the scrum the, the old fold in and then the scrum becomes active once the folding engagement has happened yeah that's, it that's not a bad way forward is it yeah well i agree because the if you look at the at the moment what you've got is two tons being persuaded to come together with such force that you're bound to have collapsed scrums and so forth so folding in you remove a lot of that engagement force. And I think that's where a lot of the problem uh, starts from. So I agree. I go back to that. But, uh, you know, what do we know? And if you're still blowing hard after sprinting to get to the next scrum and not having 30 seconds to prepare yourself and to faff around, it's not going to be such a violent uh, collision, is it, initially? Because you're blowing hard. And it's to speed the game up. Yeah. Which is what we all want to see. QED. Let's right. move on. To, another, oh, law, another law change we brought about there, boys. So. <laughs> we live in a full circle, Fran. <laughs> Every, everything, everything comes back. We'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. We'll have rucking, we'll have rucking one day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I agree with Jim Telfer and uh, Ian McGeekin. How on earth we've allowed the jackaling uh, to be part of our game? I mean, which lunatic would would... <laughs> Go over the ball, put his head near the floor, and allow a twenty stone bloke to run in from twenty yards to blast you off the ball. I mean, you've got to be mad. So I'm sure a lot of the a lot of the injuries and concussions must come in that area. But uh, you know, I agree. You know, Jim and uh, Geeks, massively respected rugby men, so I'd agree with them. We need to get rid of that. What well, once you apart from the the obvious danger of it. Once you legitimise hands on the ball on on the floor, hands on you know hands on the ball on the deck, you've got a whole bag of problems, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, people. Some people say, well, you know, the risk of um, if you go back to rooking, the danger. But well, you know, rooking was you know even in New Zealand where you know if you were anywhere near the ball, you got uh, raked out. I mean, it was never really violent. I mean, there were acts of foul play. But of course, you you could you wouldn't do that now because of course the uh, cameras and everything. Okay. So 
I don't think it's anywhere near the risk that people are talking about. And that, once again, I think it would speed up the game. It would suck more people into the breakdown, which is what we want to see, uh, and create a bit more space outside. So there's a lot of advantages to it, but yeah, we don't seem to be thinking in that direction. Let's move on to Scotland versus Ireland, which Fran kind of has the makings of an epic, weather permitting. It's a preview of the World Cup head-to-head later this year. Two teams very much at the top of their game in recent years. Um, how excited are you for that one? Well, that could be a superb game. And uh, up in Murrayfield, uh, you know, Scotland will fancy the chances. But personally, this Ireland team is so good. I mean, I, I just, I can't see them losing it. It'll be a very tight game, I think. And an exciting game to watch. Fast, open. <laughs> But uh, I just think Ireland are just so together at the moment. I mean, they, uh, the discipline, ability at the breakdown, the way they play, the pace they play at uh, is fantastic to see. And, uh, you know, to me, they are by some distance the best side in the Six Nations. And it's absolutely, uh, you know, above and beyond the sum of its parts, isn't it? I mean, well, I think one of the remarkable things about this Ireland side is is the teamship of it. Because if you were doing the old game of picking a world 15 now, there wouldn't be too many Irishmen massively in the conversation, two or three, maybe. But I, I, I don't think, you know, in the individual sense, they are abs- they're playing brilliant rugby individually, but they're not stellar, stellar guys on the world stage yet. They may become so uh, with a World Cup on the horizon. But as a, as a team, as a group, and the framework in which they play and the understanding of that framework, they're absolutely outstanding. Fair play to them. Brendan, would you love to see a Scotland win, just as a rebuttal to that? Um, well, I'm a big fan of the Scotland team, but I think when we did our prediction six weeks ago, whatever, I, I came up with an Ireland Grand Slam, so I can't, I can't go back on, on that. I, I just endorse everything the lads say. I mean, that they're, not only are they a brilliantly effective team, but they're a really good team to watch Ireland at the moment. And you don't get any sort of sense of panic with them. Uh, I think it'll be a hell of a game. I think Scotland will throw the kitchen sink at them. And, you know, we've seen what Scotland can do when, when the force is with them. But I think Ireland will find find a way of winning that. And then I think they'll beat England fairly handily to take the slam. Yeah, I I got to agree. I, <clears throat> although I've got Ireland by sixteen points, and I don't, I think that's quite a big margin. Um, few of us have got it a bit closer than that. Um, Nick Ireland are bolstered as well by quite a lot of returnees: Robbie Henshaw, Jameson Gibson Park, Sexton's obviously back in, and Ty Furlong, which is timely, um, given Finley Beelam's injured injury. Um, which of those are coming back in as starters for you? I would expect. All perhaps bar Henshaw, you know, Sexton will come back in, Furlong will come back in. I would think almost certainly Gibson Park has been their sort of their tempo man. So um, I would imagine that he he will come back in and uh, they will be, um, they'll slot back into the, you know, the machine as if there's been no interruption at all and they'll probably fire it a bit, a, a bit, Faster and uh, more powerfully, I would I would say. Um, yeah, they 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 are they're uh, they're they're really formidable side at the moment, and they've got one or two um, you know of those those gems, I suppose, um, in there. In uh, I, I think Keenan at fullback 
it sort of defies belief almost all the time. He seems to manage to wriggle through gaps. His timing's fantastic. He's not the biggest guy, but he's he's got this sort of wiry strength and speed. And um, he's he's very, very important to them, I think. Um, in terms of giving them that sort of uh, that sort of uh, extra edge in attack, so um, I think that they've uh, they've got the uh, the full hand at the moment. He's and, a very uh, high class player, isn't he, Keenan? He's a yeah. high class player. But if you look at his wings, Hansen and Lowe, you know, if you were, if you were talking yeah. if you were talking world beating wings, they yeah. wouldn't be that high on your list. But the work rate that they're, and the opportunism that they're showing. It's just smacks of a side playing with the most enormous confidence, sense of security and sort of optimism, which are all, you know, as Fran one who played in very, very successful rugby teams, they're all component parts. There's the, all, all those, you know, the, 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 the abstractions of the game are still very, very important. It's how you feel about what you're doing a lot yeah, of the yeah. time gets you over the line. Yeah, there are other, um, you know, there are other potentially. St- well, he, I think he already is. He's a he's a, a star. You know, he's he's been very very influential for them in this tournament so far. As Keelan Doris at yep. number eight, I mean, he's oh, a yeah. he's a terrific player. He's, he certainly would get in the current uh, World Fifteen. Yeah, Doris yeah. has been absolutely outstanding. But I think a lot of it stems from the uh, success of the uh, provinces, particularly Leinster. Well, I think the quality of the day in day out coaching of those players really has come through into the island team, and uh, I'm not I'm not sure that but there's probably what ten or eleven of them from uh, from Leinster, and it shows. Uh, and I agree with you, uh, uh, Chris. You look at them individually, and would they make a World Fifteen? Well, yeah, three or four at most probably would, but collectively, by God, they're some team. So I love watching them play. You know, it's everything about their plays, positive, positive, playing at pace, no matter where they are on the field, reading the situation in front of them. And they really are together. And, you know, quite rightly, they're the number one team in the world at the moment. And a big feather in the cap for Andy Farrell. I mean, when you consider that this is the first team he's ever run, you know, yeah. he's been, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's a leap. I mean, yeah. and, and when he was appointed to that job, everyone knew Andy's strengths. I mean, he's a brilliant communicator. He is the inspirational guy in the dressing room, all of those things that he was during his time with England. Um, you know, everyone looks up to Farrell. He's, he's got the medals. He's got the, the trophies on his shelf, hasn't he? But to make such a brilliant fist of a difficult job, first time you're running something, is uh, just shows a, a, a bloke of considerable talent, I think. Yeah, sure. So, and uh, total respect from the players because he's been there, done it, got the uh, got the t-shirt, and I love listening to him on the uh, on his interviews. He never flustered, gives good, solid, sensible answers. Unlike uh, one or two other coaches that uh, we could mention, there's never any bullshit from uh, from Andy Farrell. Just states it that's it that's how we're where we're at and how we're going to play and and the added bonus that compared to his son he is a brilliant comedian as well <laughs> <laughs> who'd bet against him for lions coach in um 20 2025 either he's nailed on yeah, yeah. he's nailed yeah. on yeah. you'd think so you'd think yeah. so um you coming back <laughs> <laughs> recreate the glories of the 2021 south africa tour eh? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I well, I personally would love to see a Scotland win. Um, would set up a hell of a grandstand finish on Super Saturday with three teams still in the running to win the championship. Um, yeah, will we do Fran? Shall we do your random rugby fifteen? Um, very quickly, the fifteen quick fire questions. Oh my God! I didn't know this was coming. Oh, I did. I I, I sent them to you. Did you? Oh no, no. Go on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, it's, uh, <laughs> the more the more spontaneous, the better. Um, we'll jump Brock, straight. So in. you can't trust them. Brock forwards. God oh, dear me, are they ever worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Nickname. Jaws. Jaw. Oh wow, that's a good one. To do with the uh, the film Jaws. Yeah. But uh, one or two of my colleagues. Uh, felt that I played like that, which was a bit unkind, but uh, no. Mr. Smith gave it to me, Jules. He even sent me, when I went to South Africa in the 1980, as a uh, present, he gave me a uh, stationery set which had a Jules thing printed on the uh, the back of the envelope. So that's where it came from. That's very good. <laughs> best, best rugby memory. Uh, 1974, Port Elizabeth winning the third test. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Uh, losing the fourth test in New Zealand in 1977. Pre-game tune. Uh, 74, of Scotland. Nice. And it was, instead of Proud Edwards Army, it was the Springbok Army. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Post-game meal. Post-game meal. Uh, didn't eat a meal. <laughs> I had a few beers. Yeah, I was going to say. All right, what's your post-game poison then? Yeah, yeah, a few pints of beer. I used to uh, when I first started playing for Liverpool. I'm going to a 65, 66. I used to. I was a poor student, and I used to turn up to the club with one pound in my pocket. Now, to put that into context, one pound bought eleven pints of beer in 1966. <laughs> So I always had 11 pints of beer on the Saturday after a game. Still like that in Red Roof. <laughs> Best player you've played against? Robert Papper and Board. Best player you've played with? Gareth Edwards. Favourite player right now? Ellis uh, Genge. Nice. Rugby Idol? Uh, Gareth Edwards. Favourite stadium? Uh, Twickenham. Favourite gym exercise? Oh, God. <laughs> Chris, you started laughing before I'd even asked that question. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Uh, well, we've done okay in uh, the textile industry, so yeah, I'd still be in the textile business. Superstitions? Uh, always changed in the the peg nearest the door, and always had eleven pints after a game. I suppose that's superstitious. Eleven pints after the game. Yeah. If you're nearest right. the door, you're first to the bar, aren't you? But <laughs> well, I just need to uh, address that because my uh, a lad called John Crelling was the tight end in those days at Liverpool, and he had a proper job, so he had uh, some money. So that about ten o'clock, my pound used to run out. And I'd ask him, say, look, John, could I borrow a pound until training on Tuesday? Tuesday, giving the pound back. The following Saturday at 10 o'clock, you know the pound they gave you back on Tuesday? Could I possibly have it back? And... <laughs> <laughs> so it's the pound circulated round every week. 
<laughs> Rugby law you would change. Uh the uh playing the ball on the floor with your hands. As in you should be able to play the ball on the floor. You, sh you should no no the, you should play it with your feet. You go back to proper rocking. Okay, nice. Best thing about working in rugby? Working in rugby? Well, working, just, yeah, just being involved in rugby. Well, the friendships you make, I mean, it's just fantastic sport in that uh, in that sense. That was very quick fire. Nice one. Thank there you. you go. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, it really was. Thank you for doing that, Fran. Um, right, back to the rugby. So, Brendan, when's the last time you can remember Italy going into a Six Nations fixture as favourites? Um... Two thousand seven, I think they were. I think they had a couple of wins then. And ten years ago, they beat Ireland at home uh, in their last match. And I think I predicted them to win that one. I think I wasn't alone in that. They're having a good year that year. But you're absolutely right. That this is proof positive of where they've come. Uh, I don't think they're quite such big favourites now that Capuccio is out. Yeah. He's a big player for them. But I still think they could well do it. Uh, they've still got some quality in the backs that. We haven't fully seen yet. Um, Menoncello is going to take the world by storm fairly soon. We haven't seen the best of him at all. Uh, but it'll be close, you know, because just having that talisman, that magician who can get the, the try when they need it uh, is important for a team like Italy. And to suddenly not have him is going to be a bit of a test. Again, that's going to be a great game. It's going to be a hell of a good weekend, this. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big miss, especially given how Wales kicked against England. If they did that, Oh, if they did that against Italy, they'd be in serious trouble. He would have had a field day. Um, Fran, I want to ask you about... So, Taolupe Falatao has said, and we touched upon this um, last week, I think it was, when we were speaking about Wales and actually getting up to perform for your country. And Taolupe Falatao has said it's hard to do that given their off-field issues at the moment. What do you make of those comments? Uh, well, it certainly doesn't help. I mean, it could work two ways. It either takes the morale out of the team or it uh, brings them together. Uh, I don't think uh, effort or pride in the shirt was uh, uh, on show at the uh, uh, the England game. I mean, the, uh, that was there. It was just lack of quality. I mean, the inside backs of Wales are probably the worst inside backs I've ever seen Wales put out there. And the kicking game, well... We know we know Freddie Stewart is uh, tremendous on the high ball, but you know don't give him fifteen yards to run it. Uh, the kicking was was just so so poor. That was a very very poor uh, backline that uh, they put out there. So uh, yeah, going to Italy. Well, I mean the the other nice thing about Italy is once again they're another team who are playing with real pace and ambition. Uh, and you know apart from some. Uh, uh, mistakes, you know, through uh, really lack of, um, I think, lack of playing intense rugby on a regular basis that shows occasionally. But in terms of ambition, Capozzo, I think, is a uh, is a big loss for them. I mean, when he gets the ball, it looks as though everybody else has stood still. He's so quick in uh, everything. He's so exciting to uh, to watch. So they will miss him, but I still think they, uh, in a close game, I think they're uh, they're good enough to beat Wales. I don't think I've seen. Actually, I don't think I've seen a player with with footwork that initial that initial outburst of footwork. Um, I've not seen anyone much closer to Jason Robinson than yeah, yeah. 
than Kathy Watson. I mean, he's 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 remarkable. Uh, one question I would ask everyone though is is how how much better do you think the Wales backline will be once they can pick from eating trail finders? <laughs> <laughs> is that a serious uh, proposition, man? No. People keep writing about it in the rugby paper, so it must be correct. It must be true. Yeah, it must be true. It just seems such a strange thing to do, but anyway, there you go. It's a, it's an interesting one because, you, you know, I think we, we all know that uh, the only way that a cross-border uh, move like that can happen is with the say-so of the national unions. And uh, that say-so isn't there, as far as I understand it. And um, I think it would take pretty extraordinary circumstances for it to be um, rubber stamped because where does, you know, where does something like that end? You've already got cross-border competition. So if if anybody can decide where they want to play at any given time, you've got chaos. So uh, I, I, I just don't, uh, I don't see it. Um, but I do see it as a... Um, you know, as Ealing sort of looking at another way of challenging the anti-competition um, measures that have been allowed to creep into uh, the Premiership. You know, I mean, the ring fencing of the Premiership is where this um, this begins and ends. And um, it's something that has got to be sorted out and um, sorted out properly, not not a fudge. Let's jump straight into the predictions for Italy versus Wales. Um, it's an interesting one. Three of us, myself and the two wooden spooners, um, have predicted Wales, which I'm I'm not given their track record. I'm not feeling great about aligning with them. Uh, Come join us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. My, my my throne might be in danger here, lads. Uh, Chris, can you justify a Wales win? I think you'll find that I'm well known for my late bursts of glory. <laughs> Sorry. You always were um, a Harlequins uh, man, weren't you, Chris? Speak, speak, speechless for a second, which is unusual. As I keep on pointing out to anyone who's interested, um, these predictions were made before the tournament started. I seriously did not expect Wales to be as dire as they have been in this tournament. I yeah. mean, it's been it's been borderline tragic, actually, uh, to see how they struggled. I, I mean, I know they have terrible problems, you know, the length and breadth of the game, so to speak, but being amazingly poor, and I absolutely take on board the comments that were made about the kicking game against England, which was which was beyond dumb. I mean, I couldn't believe really what I was what I was watching and listening to Jonathan Davis's commentary. Neither could he. He was close to spontaneous combustion uh, from first minute to last. So it is quite. I, I I can I can see how Wales can win the game. Um, but I think it will be largely a forward, a, a forward-driven effort against an improving Italian pack. So I'm nowhere near as confident that the Welsh that the Welsh will win this game as I may have been uh, in 1873 when I made these predictions in the first place. You know, I mean, one one of the things is that the Italian pack is, um, you, you know, is has improved their whole game has improved out of sight under Crowley I mean the speed with which it's happened even the transformation you know since last year last year's Six Nations where we saw the sort of genesis of it but the transformation's been really radical 
and um their their forwards are probably as good as any pack in the uh, in the competition at the moment so wales are going to find themselves you know confronted by an extremely motivated side and um one with a fly half in garbisi who can you know pull the strings at the right time uh, they look as if they've got a hell of a young number 8 in this guy lorenzo oh. canoni so, you know, they are, you know, they, they will miss Cap, Capuot so hugely, you know, I, I've no doubt. But, um, yeah, that prediction, I'm glad you're uh, you're with us, Ollie. That prediction's looking a little bit dodgy. And um, remember, it's my throne, not yours. And <laughs> <laughs> aren't you defending it well, Nick? <laughs> we, spoke about, we spoke earlier about the England back row. Well, that Italian back row has come on a stack. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, apart from anything else, the one bloke we didn't know a lot about, Negri is back at his something close to his best. And he's a good player when he's at full tilt. Um, so the young number eight, the skipper on the open side, um, you know, once they get Jake Pledry back fully fit and firing, pray God that happens, they will have um, they will have a decent set of loose forwards to go to the World Cup. And they may not, you know, they, they may have slightly more joy in the World Cup than they've had in the previous ones. I asked you guys to back up the Wales win prediction. <laughs> all, you've done is, all you've done is the opposite. But yeah, it's not looking great, is it? Um, Fran, make the case for Italy then, although the lads have kind of already done that for you. Uh, well, if you look at uh, Italy and all, all the games, they've been extremely competitive, playing a quick, fast game, uh, good pack of forwards, exciting behind the, uh, behind the scrum, if they can reproduce any of anything like the form they've shown in the first three games, I just think they uh, they're going to be too much for Wales, who uh, are a pretty uh, poor team at this moment in time. I was in Cardiff and uh, for the England game, and I've never known the Welsh boys to be so despondent about their team. Yeah, yeah. they were they were uh, you know crying in the beer was probably. Uh, the most despondent I've ever known a Welsh outfit in Cardiff. They would just have no positive vibes at all about the team. But it's a, it's a cumulative thing, isn't it, Fran? I mean, I, I mean, if you look, if you look at the the structural problems and the financial problems, uh, and and the the, uh, the the problems you have around generating top end players and keeping them in Wales in this financial climate, I mean, all those things piled one on top of another. That's a very, very long road they're on. And, um, and, and a, you can't see the end of it, can you? Oh, Welsh rugby is in hell of a mess. I mean, the, uh, from the uh, uh, structures governing the game, financially. I mean, Yian and his team have got a hell of a job there to, uh, to sort this out. I mean, the starting point has got to be, hopefully, the, uh, the new constitution they're proposing, which will uh, begin to... Uh, uh, take them in the right direction, but uh, at the end of the day, they haven't got any money. They're losing a stack of money. Will the players accept they're going to have to cut back quite significantly from uh, where they're uh, being paid at the moment? And the answer is probably no, and they're going to go and find uh, employment somewhere else, which is fair enough. That's their uh, prerogative, but it's not good for wealth rugby. Right. What what are your feelings, Fran, about the sorry? What what are your feelings about the um, particularly the one that England and Steve Borthwick uh, faced with? Is England players going and playing overseas? You know, mainly in France. Do you feel 
strongly about that? Do you feel that they should be allowed to um, represent England as well as, you know, seek as as good living conditions as or working conditions rather as they can? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, you know, that argument has uh, been lost for England. They they should allow them to go. I mean, the good thing about England, we've got so much talent uh, and uh, you know just the sheer volume of players. It shouldn't really affect the quality of the Premiership uh, very much at all. So, I agree with Steve Borwick. Yeah, Borwick, I think, you know, the debate's over. If they want to go to France, that's fair enough. Maybe you do it by <coughs> reducing the uh, uh, little bit like they're talking about Wales. You know, that those players who've got twenty-five caps or more will be allowed to do it. You know, the younger players, maybe you want to keep them in. So so there's a compromise there, but I think Steve's right. He should be allowed to pick them. There's a parallel here with cricket, isn't there? I think rugby's on that same course. That cricket has had to accept that the, the, the have-back, will-travel player is going to yeah. be, you know, he's, he's going to play in five different 2020 competitions and he's still going to be available for this, that and something else. It's It, it seems to me it's a player's world now. And even the New Zealanders, who have never ever picked anyone from outside playing outside the country as far? Oh, I don't know whether Jamie Jamie Salmon was Jamie Salmon in New Zealand when they picked him. Uh, he probably was, but that even they've accepted the fact that between World Cups, your Brody Vitalics and your your Jerome Kinos and everyone who's going to push off to Japan, spend two years there, put some hay in the loft, as the fragrant Boris Johnson will put it, and yeah. and then come back. And as long as as long as they're back in town within a reasonable amount of time before World Cup, the New Zealand Rugby Football Union uh, are, are yeah. fine with it because yeah. they have to be fine with it. They don't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think the same will happen with England. So, yeah. you know, uh, let's get on with it and agree some form of structure or regulation that uh, allows sensibly that to happen. And, of course, if that was the case in England now, Nick, your mate Alex John Brandt might not be the England number eight because Zach Mercer would have been in at the start of the tournament. <laughs> Talking of Don Brandt, he's actually been playing pretty well. I thought yes, he played he very well. Again. Yes, he has. I mean, I was never completely sold. That's the best. The, the, the last game was the best I've seen him play by a country mile at the top level. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when Mercer comes back, I think that'll be a proper competition because Mercer. Yeah, I like yeah. No, I like Mercer. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's good. Good for England. Good. Oh, he's going to Gloucester, isn't he? Not coming back to Bath. No, no. I mean. <laughs> yes, you would have thought that would have occurred to Finn Russell before he put his name on the contract. <laughs> Sends a message. Everyone else is avoiding this place, the place like the plague. Why have I just signed up for three years? Hey ho. Um, Mind the million, million quid a year, mate, have something to do with it. Uh, well, the money may be involved. Yeah, yeah. Let's just run down the predictions league very, very quickly. Um, Chris and Nick, I'm sure you'd rather we didn't. Chris, I am going to give you credit because your 32-21 call for France-Scotland was very, very impressive. Um, and you did get quite a lot of bonus points for that. Hence, you've caught up with Nick, despite... Um, what did you predict? You predicted a Wales, Wales to beat England, didn't you? <laughs> I, I, I predicted a couple of Wales, Welsh victories. Yeah, um, and it's gone yeah. well. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, I mean, apart apart from being the arse end of a pantomime horse, I couldn't look more stupid at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Fran, you're currently just behind myself and Brendan. Um, you're on a team with who's played Jonathan Davis, Scott Hastings, and Jerry Guscott, who have 
set you up pretty nicely um for the tournament so far so do 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 keep up with that but it'll, it's right. i'm sure i'll fall behind this weekend after my garbage predictions um so well chris i'll be close to you than i've ever been by by next week well every cloud has a silver lining <laughs> and what's the silver lining here um, I'm just amused at the thought that it's the first time that Fran's been mentioned in the same sub in the same sentence is Jonathan Davis, Scott Hastings, and Jeremy Guscott ever. Yeah, yeah, it's a different skill set, Chris. It, well, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and and of course, without you, what are they? Correct, <laughs> correct. Right, guys, we will we'll wrap up there. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, oh god, I can't wait for round four. It's gonna be a good one. Hey, it's very nice to see you, Fran. Yeah, yeah, good to see you guys. Look after yourself. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday, and to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital, and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.